You are listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these uninspired talks given by Michael McAllister, followed up by question and answer exchanges with groups of his students. Nagarjuna says that uh, without a foundation in the conventional truth, the significance of the ultimate can't be taught. And without understanding the significance of the ultimate, liberation is not achieved. And this is a wonderful descriptor, a wonderful pointer uh, for us. Without a foundation in the conventional truth, the significance of the ultimate can't be taught. Meaning that without uh, grounding ourselves in what's happening in the world of form, we're not going to find formlessness. We can't teach it unless we know what's happening. Until we become really not only mentally aware of what's happening, but we have a felt sense of what is happening in the world of form, in this conventional world. And when we understand what's going on in this world of form, suffering starts to come up. We start recognizing that the places where we could find, we could find an anesthetic to the typical spikes and pains of our day to day that which used to anesthetize us from that no longer works. It's run out, that we've developed an immunity to it as we start seeing the world of form for what it is. Once this happens though, once we start really studying the self and its relationship to all other things, then suddenly all these pointers start taking us in a direction that we really didn't expect to go. And the teaching, whatever brand of teaching it is that you prefer, whatever preference you have in as far as teaching goes, starts to wake us up little by little. And we begin to uncover the significance then of the ultimate. In uncovering the significance of the ultimate, this doesn't mean necessarily that we need to have 
a profound realization of the ultimate in order to kind of uh, get this taste. We don't have to, in other words, have the broad slam of a satori or an enlightenment experience to recognize the significance of the ultimate. We can recognize its significance without ever experiencing that. But the step into liberation, into freedom, that is achieved once we put ourselves right next to that fire of the ultimate continually continually we expose ourselves to its radiance and what it burns away is all the stuff that is unneeded all the conventional stuff that helped us get there but we no longer need just like a child eventually no longer needs training wheels on her bike. A child no longer needs water wings to get into the deep end. And the aha at that moment is a deep freedom, just like the freedom all of us felt when we no longer needed water wings and we were in the deep end. We no longer needed those training wheels. And it was as if we were flying. And there's this innocent, unbridled expanse that we just call liberation, even though it goes way past that. So, recognizing in this world of form all that is recognizing what's going on, really kind of tuning in to what's happening in our personal experience in relationship to the rest of the world. Especially once we start diving into a practice, recognizing what really is happening as we start dive, diving into this practice. We start, like I said, to begin this recognition process with ego totally cooperating totally cooperating once we start a spiritual practice because it gives ego an identity. It gives ego something to talk about, especially with uh, friends. It's a great, great thing. You know, I'm a Buddhist. I'm a, I'm, I belong to this group. Uh, I don't really know what it is we do, but, uh, you know. And then suddenly the conversation at the cocktail party switches radically say like, yeah well anyway uh so how about those niners <laughs> tough year for them huh? growth year yeah yeah but this stage from recognition if we stick with it and if we kind of forget about what it is that we do not just in the infinite smile sangha but in any sangha of any denomination, if there's kind of just a commitment to the practice itself, and we stick with it long enough, we literally begin to, you know, let it in, really let it in, let it settle a little bit, 
Then we hit the second stage, as I've mentioned before, which we call resistance. And oddly enough, the stage of resistance is where ego is most comfortable, almost more comfortable than creating an identity about being a meditator or being a Buddhist. It's more comfortable in the stage of resistance because it means it has an enemy. And as long as ego has an enemy, thrives. Think about how much defense we have. Just in our day-to-day, -day, how much defense we have over particular opinions, over particular points of view, positions, over our bodies, over our property, over our things, over our mates, over our relationship with our mates, over our relationship with ourselves in relationship to our mates. So much of our work is defensive. And what we try to do as beings on this planet, as all these egos, is we look for things to threaten us as a way of hanging on to the earlier conventional stage instead of recognizing the significance, as Nagarjuna pointed out, of the ultimate. We can let it in little bit by little bit, okay? And in fact, if we let it in just a little here and just a little there, what begins to burn gives us something to fight against, right? The white hot fire of awakening itself. We can run around and try to understand it. We can, and then we realize we can't understand it. So the ego spends all its time just trying to smash it down and, and tamp it out. Um, sometimes it's successful at this. Sometimes it is successful at this. But usually it remains in this state of war until the war exhausts the separate self-sense, until the war exhausts the ego. We could also say it exhausts the mind. And in this exhaustion, there's a chance that the war that habitually ego clings to undoes itself. There are no more enemies. And as a result, there is only non-war. And another name for non-war is peace. Ego no longer feels compelled to make something about this very moment wrong always. Something about this very moment lacking something that it needs to feel more complete. Ego rests. And out of that rest, which can only happen in the present moment, it can only happen in the now, where there is no past informing any identity, and there is no future forming any outcome for ego to cling to. There are no more enemies. 
It just gives up. But getting there can be excruciating if we can't learn to play with the experience. Everything, everything, everything is temporary. So if we can't learn to play with this temporary nature of all things, we're going to have a difficult series of resistance patterns that we'll have to kind of bust through. Now this is not necessarily a happy message for ego. And certainly ego is going to show itself. I just lost how much money in the market? You know, that does not show up typically as a joyous moment. <laughs> Lucent's worth how much? Oh, happy day. 200 grand down the tube, 200 million down the tube. The Tosco refinery just put what into the bay? <laughs> Whoopsie. <laughs> this is not the typical reaction that we have. Ego, in fact, loves it when stuff like that happens. Because no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, ego's got an enemy. Tosco did what? The corporations did what? Welfare mothers are getting how much per extra kid? Whatever it happens to be, we can lock ourselves into these spaces. And when we lock ourselves into these spaces, we're at war. There is no peace there. There never will be any peace there. We will never be able to get to the ultimate stage of release, of releasing ourselves and others and other situations into the undefended spaciousness of the ultimate. We won't ever understand the significance of the ultimate. It can't be taught if we're constantly at war. It can't be pointed out if we're closed and defended. Once we start getting a sense of it, though, this is when practice becomes critical because as this sense, this intuitive kind of, huh, wow, maybe, hmm, what is this? As that is kind of starting to germinate and bloom within us, it becomes very important that practice takes on a very significant role. And it does not mean that we have to stare at a wall for 40 minutes every morning. It's a great thing for ego to use against meditation. Come on, I'm a Westerner. I'm a Westerner, there's no way I'm gonna, I cannot afford 40 minutes every morning. I've got, I've got, I've got mouths to feed, I've got my kids are getting up, you know, I've got, uh, the dog needs to be walked. I get this, I get that. When, you know, when I go on a run, that's, that's when I get it. I get, you know, that's when I get my meditation. My meditation actually occurs when I'm driving uh, my commute, it, you know, right there, Caldecott Tunnel. That, that's where my meditation really starts to happen. Well, you know what? That's, none of that's wrong. 
any of that could be a meditation as long as as long as it is still if its orientation is totally in the realm of complete and absolute stillness it's meditation driving on the freeway wonderful form of meditation can you do it from a position of stillness driving in town sometimes even better can you do it from a position of stillness can you get your kids packed up lunches ready to go boom out the door from a position of continual repeated stillness can you say goodbye to your kids as they go to college as they get married from a place of complete still can you do it from a place of complete stillness because if you can if that's the orientation that is none other than meditation and from that place suddenly liberation shows up again and again and again and again all from a foundation in the conventional truth a foundation of being in the world a foundation of every day mind suddenly it shows itself as the ultimate itself the small and dense the heavy the shallow becomes the big the light the deep the rich the abundance that we get from that place is mystical magical and we can give it away it's not an abundance of things it's an abundance of depth and it is available always it's never not there that's release So, Michael, I'm trying to put a time frame on this process. Not, of course. No, I mean, not, not like, <laughs> will it happen, in, however, but more so you're in resistance and you're in resistance, and then there's a little bit of release. But isn't it true that even you go back to resistance? Oh, sure. So, so it's, it, it's not one step to another, ta-da. I, okay. yeah, I couldn't agree more with that that last thing you just said. It's not one step to another, then ta-da. It is a suturing process. Suturing? Yes. We sew together the conventional and the ultimate all day long. Every event gives us a chance to sew that cut back together, All right? So that wisdom and compassion meet. And there are great opportunities that show up for each of us when certain 
things tweak us just right. And we practice recognizing each one of those tweaks for what they are, gifts. Gifts leading us right into abundance, right into depth. And we get to play. We have to be careful when we play, even though that's where liberation is achieved, even though that's release, the playing. If we play from an egoic place, we're playing to get something. If we play from a non-egoic place, we are expressions of spirit. Yeah? So, when you or I or anyone else finds this start to happen, the practice is to meditate in that moment. That's, that's a point of meditation. Sitting at the wall is helpful. It helps ground that practice. I advocate that type of work. I think it's a shortcut. I think sitting 40 minutes a day is a shortcut in many respects. Is it totally necessary? No. But coming from that place of stillness, the play actually becomes a continual release. It's continual wonder. Ooh, what's going to happen next? Because guess what? I don't need for anything to happen in this next moment. Everything I need is right here. Cool. It's all good. <laughs> yeah? Thank you. Following on Jeannie's question, I find frequently that my ego, you know, keeps asking, you know, you know, are you making progress? You know, how much progress are you making? And I, and I obviously understand that that's ego, but my question is, is that necessarily bad to wonder mm. where you are, where you're going? Of course not. If you stare long enough into the abyss, the abyss stares back. So says Nietzsche. Okay. And, and smiles. And he smiles while he's doing it, yeah, through that mustache, right. Uh, wondering, while there is staring into the abyss, is wonderful, as long as it's done completely, all right? And without attachment. Right, right. Um, and if you're really interested in litmus tests, there's a real simple one. How much resistance are you feeling? Okay. All that does is it shows you the extent to which egoic pushes and pulls are at work. Non-resistance, non-want, not denial, okay, but non-want, non-war non-defense, not, you know, that experience usually comes in and then is very fleeting. And it's fleeting for a reason 
because ego cannot stand it. Ego cannot stand the present moment because it has no place to function. It has nothing to grasp onto. Especially when the abyss stares back because it stares right past it. It's like, wait, 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 I'm here. The spotlight should be on me. Hello, hello. Is this thing on? You know, it's ignored. It's totally insignificant. So go deeply into your body and find where there is clinging because you'll feel it oftentimes before you'll think it. And let that, let that body sense, that deep interior, let that inform how you walk down the street, how you drive, how you communicate with other people. Are you trying to show them anything? Are you trying to prove? Are you trying? Those little teeny needs, those resistances to what already is, if it's just you sitting in a chair, silent, that oddly enough is a full expression of you. Full expression is total silence or total song or totally engaged conversation, but it is total if it's full expression. And there's no resistance in it. So try to feel for resistance. Try to feel for clinging. And if there's clinging in your mind, it will be met in your body in the form of emotion. That's where it meets. So just explore that. Watch yourself lean in one direction or another. And the critical moment is watching when that lean becomes a reach and a grab. Watch for that. Study that move. Um, as I'm, I'm finding, and you're helping me with this, um, that as significant or as, as, as useful as meditation is, as sitting is, that the moment-to-moment -moment daily life, uh, applying this there, seems to be helping much more. And especially the metaphor of driving. I find that to be just wonderfully helpful. Um, and I'm not sure why that is. I guess it's because you're paying attention so strongly as it is, as a matter of course. And it seems a perfect opportunity when things happen around you to either just to let them occur and not be attached to an outcome, whether it's somebody pissing you off because they cut you off mm -hmm. or traffic being slow and being wanting it to be something other than it is. I'm finding that that... I smile all the time now when I'm driving because... Stuff's work. It's Stuff works, Chris, doesn't yeah, it? <laughs> yeah. So more comment. But. Well, th thank you for that. If I uh, continually, continually advocated this idea that um, if it's not brought into the world, it's not worth anything. Right. Okay? That said, it's important to make sure that there is 
an inner monk in you that can access the absolute. Right. Especially, it can access the absolute just like we can turn the TV off with the remote, right. that you can do that with the mind. Yeah. yeah. That's meditation. Right. And it's a, it's rushed to that button. I mean, sometimes I feel, as I'm driving, that old pattern wants to come in, and I don't know if I'm not letting it or what it is that's actually occurring, but if you, you, can, you can just smile instead and, and just go with what is. Yeah. Yeah. This is liberation. Mm -hmm. Thanks, guys.